0: We continue in our study of Ephesians this morning. I may be stating the obvious here, but maybe not. We live in a hostile world. We see it appear in this passage, certainly in the first century here between Jew and Gentile, the word hostility appears twice, verses 14, verse 16. And it's a word that means enmity or or hatred. That there was in the first century a deep hatred between two people groups, the Jews, and the Gentiles. And, but that wasn't the beginning of hostility in our world. To, to learn where it came from, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 3. When sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, and, and said no to him and were divorced from him, we see hostility begin to penetrate the world. It starts in a marriage, Adam and Eve's marriage. The first thing they do, is they, they hide from God, but they hide from each other. That Suddenly now in marriage, they're no longer allies, but they're enemies. And those of you that are married understand what that can be like. It's a product of the fall. Then we see in Genesis 4, Cain murders his younger brother, Abel. That's the, the pinnacle of high hatred and hostility that we see there of, of murder. And that begins in the Old Testament all the way to our modern day, stories over and over of a world that is hostile, of people that are hostile and divided. Think back to 1994, from April to July of 1994, three months, three months in in Rwanda, the the Hutu ethnic majority murdered 800,000 people all of them primarily of the Tutsi ethnic minority in this nation of Rwanda. 800,000 people in three months. And they did it with clubs and machetes. Up to 10,000 people per day. Now that's one story of genocide that we have seen throughout history. right? The Holocaust being the pinnacle of it. Think about our own country, back a couple years ago in Ferguson, Missouri, when the, the white policeman shot that 18-year-old African-American man, Michael Brown, and what happened? Right? Looting, rioting. Uh, the city was, it, it looked like a worn, torn city after that. Racial tension, and that's one example of many that we see throughout history of racial tension and the hostility that develops. And, and those are active examples. Those are the, the obvious ones that make it on the news that we see and go, yes, our world's hostile. But then there's the more passive hostility. It's the hostility that goes under the radar that probably is more reflective of the worlds that we actually live in day to day. Recent studies showed that roughly half of Americans, about 50% of Americans, don't know their neighbor's names. That there's this isolation, that there's this this passive isolation and division and and categorization of our world that leaves us isolated, which eventually leads to hatred and anger and violence and what we see at the other end of the spectrum. Our world is hostile. I don't know if you're familiar with the children's book. It's called The All Better Book. And it's it's a children's book where they ask elementary school kids to solve some of the world's toughest problems. Like how do you stop the ozone layer from shrinking and how do you get people to stop smoking or doing drugs or, right? They ask these kids. And here was one of the questions they asked. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What would you suggest? And this eight-year-old girl named Kalani came up with a solution. Here's her solution. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. Okay? There's the solution. Right? A certain future administrator. How has God dealt with the hostility, the division, the isolation in our world? How has He dealt with it? We're going to start with looking at the cause of hostility. What is the cause of hostility? Why is there hostility? Why is there hatred? Why is there division? And we're gonna look at the Jew-Gentile example here that's given in Ephesians 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There it is, there's there's alienation. Now we're gonna get to the vertical alienation that the Gentiles experienced and the Jews. But what we see here is that there was alienation between Jew and Gentile. They even had names for each other, right? The Jews called the Gentiles that uncircumcised group, right? That was a, a derogatory name that was used to describe those people. Now the question is what caused the hatred? The answer is at the end of verse 14 and verse 15. Look at it. It says, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which means he's put an end to the hatred by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So Christ abolished the thing that was causing the hostility. And you say, wow, the law expressed in ordinances Does that mean the law is bad? No, Jesus and Paul make that very clear in other parts of Scripture. What it's driving at here is the Mosaic law that God gave his people. When God gave his people the law, he was giving them a gift of how they were to love God and love others in a world that had been marred and broken by sin. And this law was a gift to show them how to live that would make them distinct, that would make them be a light in this world marred by sin, so that they could be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So the law was a gift that was supposed to bless others. But instead of receiving the law as a gift, the Jews decided that the people of God, the people of Israel decided that God had given them his law and his promises because they were better. And so the law became a means, therefore, of exclusion and of oppression. And it became the means by which they could look down on the Gentiles. And we see it in the temple, the way the temple was set up. There was the court of the Gentiles And the Gentiles could not come past a certain point. There was a clear division. Now, this example, this Jew Gentile example, speaks to a universal problem. And here it is that when God gives you talents or strengths or a gift or a certain uniqueness, He gives it to you as a gift, but what the fallen human heart tends to do is to take that gift, whatever it is, and elevate it so that now that becomes the means by which I can look down on others, the means by which I can judge others. Divorced from God, separated from Christ in verse 12. You and I, I said it last week, are incredibly insecure. It's the problem that we see coming out of Genesis chapter three. We're incredibly insecure. And so what happens is the gift that God gives us or, or the talent or the strength becomes the means by which we're gonna build an identity, right? prove our worth, establish our worth, establish our value, because divorced from God, we're, we're searching for something to give us identity. And that's what tends to happen. That's why... Hostility is, now see it here, we're gonna get into it a little later. Hostility is horizontal, but it starts vertical, right? When there's vertical hostility, unreconciled to God, you have no choice but to compare yourself to others because somehow you've got to build your identity and establish your worth. That's the way the fallen human heart works. And that's what we see happening here. A beautiful example of gaining value by feeling superior to others is Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. They walk into the temple, okay? Tax collectors were despised of the day. Pharisees were the good, law-abiding people of God, right? Had been given God's law. Pharisee walks into the temple, stands by himself, holds his hands up and says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, pointing to the tax collector. You see what's happening there. Divorced from God, not getting your identity or your worth or your significance from God. You're left to have to compare yourself to build an identity. Thank you that I'm not like X or Y. Man was uh, shipwrecked on a desert island and he was there for a whole year. Finally, search and rescue found him. And uh, they, when they found him, they noticed he had built two churches you know, two little shacks as, as places of worship. And they, they said to this man, why did you build two churches? There's only one of you. And he said, that's easy. Everybody needs a church to go to and a church to be against. That, that's how we live. Now, listen, there's a thousand things that you can do, a thousand things that you can use to build your identity, build your worth. What I just told you, that example, that's a struggle here okay, as a pastor, right? But there's a thousand ways you can do it. Give you a couple examples. Maybe slightly humorous examples. Uh, Mothers who give birth naturally. Look at mothers potentially who take an epidural and say, ah, they're just not quite tough enough. They can't quite gut it out, nor are they willing to experience the pain that God promised coming out of childbirth in Genesis 3. Moms that take an epidural look at moms that go natural and go, man, I don't know why they endured that pain. They must not have an enlightened perspective that Jesus is making all things new. And an epidural is part of that, right? Mothers who raise their children according to baby wise. Uh, I said it, baby Wise from the pulpit. Those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, Google it when you get home, okay? Mothers that raise their kids according to baby wise, look at moms who don't and say they're just undisciplined, they're spoiling their children, just feeding them all the time. Moms who don't do baby wise, look at moms who do baby wise and say, wow, they are mean. They're not loving or nurturing their child. Democrats say Republicans are rich and don't care about the poor. Republicans say Democrats are socialists and don't care about America. Presbyterians look at Pentecostals and say, wow, Pentecostals are out of control and they're not using their mind. Pentecostals look at Presbyterians and say they're dead. They have no emotion. How can they not say amen to that? In fact, amen, last week. (laughs) Last week after the sermon, In the afternoon, I got a text from a friend who said, thanks for bringing the gospel. I wanted to stand up and give the old Pentecostal amen. So I texted back, amen. (laughs) We use just about anything to create categories, to create division, to elevate ourselves over someone else. That is the cause of hostility. So the question becomes then, How does God put an end to it? What's the solution to hostility? Verse 13. Verse 13 says, but now. You remember what happened at the beginning of chapter two, verses one through 10. There was that verse, but God. And we rejoiced in that. We rejoice again, but now, meaning that God intervenes to do what we're unable to do. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God. Interesting, the problem hostility, God first deals with it, not horizontally. He doesn't just say, get along. He says, there's a problem. The hostility you're experiencing horizontally is a vertical hostility first. That you're hostile to God, that you're an enemy to God, that you're not reconciled to God. And as I said earlier, if you're not reconciled to God, the one who made you, then you will seek to gain value, seek to gain worth by comparing yourself to others. And to compare yourself, you have to create categories, some of which I named, To elevate yourself. And so the problem is first and foremost, a vertical problem of reconciliation with God. All the efforts to deal with horizontal problem of hostility in our world, if they're they're dealt with without first dealing with the vertical, it will all fail. I remember, I guess this was the mid 80s. I'm dating myself here, but maybe it was then. The We are the world big song that came out. I'm seeing some smiles and they had all these major artists and they're locked arm in arm and we are the world. We're going to be one. And it was great. There's a problem. That's not going to happen without dealing with the vertical problem of hostility and separation from God. It will will fail. School bus driver. Taking his kids to school one day, the bus is full and there's just There's name calling in the back. There's fighting. There's cruelty. And the black kids and the white kids are just, they're calling each other out around racial stuff. And this bus driver got fed up. So he stops the bus. He turns around. He says, Listen up. There are no black people and there are no white people on this bus. You are all green people. You're green people. Turns around. Bus gets quiet. Drives for several minutes. Everything seems to be going well. And then one kid pipes up and he says, all you dark green people on this side, all you light green people on this side. Listen, you can't end the hostility. Jesus had to do it and he did it. Verse 14 Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, listen to this, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus killed the hostility. And the hostility there is referring to that vertical hostility that kept you or keeps you from being reconciled to God. That Jesus himself, took on him the divine hostility. When you read the gospels on his movement to the cross and you see how he was was, uh, mocked and how he was stripped and beaten, all of that, and you say, that must've been awful. It was nothing compared to when he hung on that cross and he experienced divine hostility, utter separation from his father and the active wrath of God being poured out on him because of your sin, that he took hostility upon himself so that what's left for you is not a hostile relationship to God, but oneness, love, as we heard this morning in the video. Zephaniah 3, he sings over you. That, that, that's what happens when you're reconciled to God. And so verse 18, that we can have access in one spirit to the Father, and so, reconciled to the Father, you find your security, your identity, your worth in Him, and you're left with no need to establish the divisive categories that we do to gain value. So, reconciliation to God, which produces reconciliation to others, which puts an end to the hostility and ushers in peace. Now, how does this happen practically? reconciliation to god or the gospel restructures your identity it absolutely restructures your identity look at verse 15 it says that jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace one new man one new humanity One commentator says it well. He said, the first century world was divided into Jews and Gentiles. Paul here makes a threefold division. Jew, Gentile, and the church of God. Christians were to speak of themselves as a third race or a new race. And this is very practical. What it means is this, that you are a Christian first an American second. You're a Christian first. You're a Republican, Democrat, or independent second. That you're a a Christian first and a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Methodist, a non-denominationalist second. Now, it doesn't mean that you cease to become an American or you cease to to be a Democrat, or you cease to be a Presbyterian. No, but all those things are are secondary. The gospel restructures your identity. So you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ first, and all of those become relative to that, to that new identity. And that's what, when when the identity is restructured, that's what kills those categories Right? some of which I name, but there's thousands of them that we create that produces the hostility. So we've looked at the cause of hostility, the, the end of hostility. Now, what's God's goal in ending the hostility? Right? I mean, his goal is not just that everybody would get along. It's deeper than that. That's what he starts to speak into in verses 19 through 22. At the center of this whole discussion is the church, the household of God that the cause of hostility, it's ended through Jesus, but that all of this resides and this new peace. The word peace appears four times here. This new peace is in the church, through the church to the world. There's a greater purpose. Verses 19 to 22, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ Jesus being the chief, cornerstone. Now, what does that mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? It's it's building imagery. The cornerstone was that stone that was uh, the first stone laid on the construction of a foundation. And it's what the builder would use to set the, the line for the building, to set the line for the building. So that stone was laid, and every stone that was laid after that was referenced back to that first cornerstone. If, when a foundation was being built, and, and you can imagine this, if, if the next stone that's laid is laid uh, in line with the previous one, always just the previous one, imagine what happens if one stone gets set off just a little bit. Then the next stone is laid off a little bit, and suddenly you have a line that just starts to curve. Right? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now, what does this have to do with hostility? Let me give you a a couple thoughts here. Paul says this is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? With Jesus as the chief cornerstone, that everything moving forward gets tied back to Jesus and his word, right? you, can, uh, you can tie something to a pastor or an author or a commentator, which is okay as long as your ultimate reference point is Jesus. If not, things get out of balance quickly, because any man or woman is is somewhat flawed. Everything has to be tied back to Jesus. Uh, So a pastor, an author, a commentator can become the functional cornerstone, and that's a dangerous place to be. Or culture, culture can become the reference point, the ultimate cornerstone. Case in point, and this deals with hostility. Think about the American South. Think about slavery in the American South right, that institution that we would all look at and say it was awful, right? It produced hostility. It produced hatred between two people groups, whites and blacks. And it finally ended and it was abolished. Do you know, though, that there were godly men and godly churches, and by that I mean solid, Bible-believing, Christ-centered men and churches that did not speak out against slavery, because it was a cultural norm. It was a cultural norm. That had become the reference point, the the cornerstone instead of Christ, and it produced massive hostility. That Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It is possible in a decade or two that we might find the same tension mounting around sexuality in our culture because of what is gonna probably become more of the norm. And so Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He himself is our peace. And then his one body, the church, is built into, verse 22, a dwelling place for God. That the church of Jesus Christ becomes the presence of God on earth. The the church of Christ becomes the presence of God on earth, right, spreading the peace. Spreading the peace that has put an end to hostility. After apartheid was abolished in South Africa in the 1990s, you remember apartheid was that system of racial segregation that produced hostility, that produced uh, just an awful institution in South Africa between black and white. And in the 1990s, it was abolished and the Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu was put in charge of or, or, or chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the truth and reconciliation commission was just that. They were commissioned to bring the truth of what had happened out and to hopefully see reconciliation between the the two parties, the perpetrators and the victims. And the rules were pretty simple. that The perpetrators had to tell the entire truth of what they did. They had to confess the utter truth with the victim or, or victims that were affected by it in the room. And in one particular case, a white policeman by the name of, uh, of Vanderbrook was in the room confessing the truth of what he had done. And he told how he and several of his officers had shot an 18-year-old South African boy and burned him. And this boy's mother was in the room as the victim who had been affected by this. And then he described eight years later how he and a couple officers went back and took the boy's father, her husband, and forced her to watch as they burned him and incinerated his body. And he got done telling the whole truth. And the judge turned to this elderly woman sitting there and said, what what do you want? And she said, I want three things. One, I want this officer to go back to where my husband's body was burned and to collect the dust so that I can give him a proper burial. Number two, my entire family was taken away. And I would love for Mr. Vanderbroek to come to my place twice a month so that I can pseudo adopt him and love him. And number three, she said, I want this officer to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him. And so that he knows that this forgiveness is real, I want to go embrace him. And so this elderly woman stood up and as she made her way across the room, the room and the people that were gathered broke out spontaneously into singing Amazing Grace. And as she shuffled across, she never got to him because the officer Fainted, overwhelmed by what he saw. Who do you need to be reconciled to? Who do you have hostility towards? Jesus Christ came and killed the hostility so that in himself he could make one new man, one new humanity called the church. That is the presence, the very presence of God on this earth, spreading the peace that He bought through His blood. Let's pray. Father, every one of us is guilty of hostility maybe very active forms of hostility towards certain people, towards certain groups. And for some of us, it's very passive hostility that just manifests itself in these comparisons in our hearts and looking down on others and secretly wishing that others fail because we can only feel good about ourselves if somebody else is lowered. Father, would you open our eyes to what your son Jesus has done, that he killed the hostility that existed between you and us, and that in him, we are one with you, that we don't have to build an identity apart from you anymore, that we don't have to establish our worth or our significance or gain value outside of you, that secure in you that we can be about peace and oneness and love towards our brother and towards our sister. Father, would you make this congregation here at East one? And even the subtle forms of hostility, would you expose them? And would there be reconciliation and confession and sweet forgiveness? That we would be one people on mission in this city to extend your peace to a city and world that desperately need it. Father, as we close in worship now, would we do so out of hearts that are grateful? for what your son Jesus has done and the oneness that he has brought. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.